Mark chapter 9, verse 2. I'll be reading through verse 8. Mark 9, 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fooler on earth can white them. And there appeared unto him, unto them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more save Jesus only with themselves. You may be seated. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And I too greet you and welcome you here in the name of the Lord Jesus. Indeed, though we do this every Sunday, indeed this is a privilege to together worship the Lord on the first day of the week. Yes, we'd like to be taking a look at another significant event that happened on a mountaintop. The four that we had noticed before were Old Testament happenings. And today, here in the book of Mark, we're now in the New Testament where God, where the Word is showcasing our Almighty God's Beloved Son, and that Son, to that Son we owe everything. He is our Creator, He is our Savior, He is our Lord. He is our Creator, He is our Savior, He is our Lord, and He is more than that. He is our Creator, our Savior, our Lord, and much, much more than that. Thank God for Jesus. His life on earth, Jesus, Largely, see, um, in many ways, was one of moving from humiliation to exaltation, from humiliation over to exaltation. And as I think of that, I think of the song that we sometimes sing, Born among cattle in poverty sore, living in meekness by Galilee's shore, Dying in shame as the wicked ones swore, Jesus, wonderful Lord. Jesus' life from birth through his death, even the death of the cross, was largely one of humiliation. And the exaltation especially began at his Burial. Remember, he was buried in a rich man's 
grave. And that exaltation exploded at his resurrection and those 40 days after and in the, his ascension back up to heaven. And maybe you're thinking along with me that we haven't seen much yet as to Jesus' glory and exaltation. Yes, there's been a lot, but most of his glory and exaltation is yet coming in the future when he returns again to this planet, to planet Earth, the days following, the years and the centuries and the millennium following, and throughout all eternity. That movement, though, beginning with humiliation and finally getting to exaltation, wasn't absolute in his life. Remember, there was some times of glory. Remember uh, in the fields of Bethlehem, just after Jesus was born, and that angel chorus? I wouldn't have minded being there myself. Remember a few years later when those wise men from the east came and lavished him with all kinds of expensive gifts and worshipped him besides? Remember at John the Baptist's baptism, there came a voice from heaven, um, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It, those, those little pictures, those little incidents in his life, to me, correct me if I'm wrong, to me it almost seems as if God himself, as if Almighty God himself um, is just a little impatient and can't hardly wait to pull back the curtain just a little bit of Jesus' glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Nowhere before the resurrection is that glory in view, or nowhere before the resurrection is maybe God's impatience in view quite as much as in the transfiguration of which Nate just read in Mark 9. That term, Jesus was transfigured, the Bible says. That's both in Matthew and Mark, I think, that use that term transfigured. Jesus was transfigured before them. That comes from a Greek word that, from which we get our word, our English word, metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. And you are instantly thinking, when you hear that word, back to school, back to science class, right? You know, metamorphosis. There's this little worm. It's unattractive as could be. It's earthbound. It can't go very far, very fast, and certainly not more than just off. Yeah, it's earthbound. And then it spins its cocoon, and a lot of things happen over time, and eventually that worm emerges 
much differently than it went into the cocoon. Now it's attractive, it's beautiful, it's, it can fly. And, there's been a major and a wonderful change, metamorphosis, not just a little change now, but a big, beautiful, wonderful change for the better. Transfiguration. Jesus' change is much in display here in these verses. Uh, the, that word, metamorphosis, means, and I quote from a dictionary, complete change in appearance, character, circumstances, right? Com complete change in appearance, character, circumstances. One, one suggested cinnamon, synonym that we often use is transformation. And I noticed that Elizabeth Elliot said long, a number of years ago that she prefers the term transfigured to transformation because transformation doesn't always imply glory as transfiguration always does. Transfiguration, maybe we could say, equals glory. Jesus was transfigured before them. He was changed. He was altered. He was glorified. He was transfigured before them. So let's just take a little closer look at this passage, this experience in Jesus' life and in the three disciples' life. It's also recorded in Matthew 17 and in Luke 9. So if you have a couple extra fingers or bookmarks, might be good because we might be switching back and forth every once in a while, looking not only at Matthew, not only at Mark 9, but also at Matthew 17 and Luke 9. As we do so, I feel more than usual, I think, that there's so much going on here in this text and in this, as we work on this sermon, that I just don't understand, and it seems like there's plenty more. I just know there's plenty of meaning and, and wonder there that I haven't yet experienced or understood. But I am grateful for that which I do understand here about Jesus' glory, his transfiguration, past glory and coming glory. As I look at this text, uh, I think of a lot of questions. Uh, that aren't necessarily answered in the text. And if I often say this, it's because I often think this, that if I get a chance in heaven, wouldn't it, if we get a chance in heaven, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could sit down with, oh, maybe Peter and John will have too long a line, waiting line, but maybe we could check with James and just ask him some things. Wouldn't that, that what a time that will be. Verse 3, let's go to verse 3. And the emphasis in verse 3 is on his clothing and on his countenance. Do you see that in Mark 9? And you will see the same emphasis in Matthew 17 and in Luke 9, except I think here in Matthew, verse 3, it only talks about his raiment doesn't talk about his countenance as the other two gospel writers do. Clothing and countenance are in view in verse 3. And Mark describes his clothing 
his raiment with two asses. Do you see that there? And I think there's good reason why he used that word as, as, twice. We call them similes sometimes, don't we? White as snow. As no fuller on earth can white them. There are things in life uh, sometimes that just almost take our breath away, almost take our, and there are almost no words to describe it. Um, even such a thing, a simple thing like a beautiful sunset in the West. And sometimes we say, I think, I'm just thinking that Mark must have been thinking along those lines, and the best that he could do in describing and explaining what was going on there was to use comparisons, as. White as snow. We remember again after this week how white snow is. And the second as, as no fuller on earth can white them. Now, what is a fuller? A fuller is a launderer, as various modern translations would render it, a launderer. So as no fuller can white them. In Bible times, fullers laundered clothing, often wool, by taking them out, uh, laying them on the ground, I guess, and tr tramping on them. Or beating them with sticks or bat-type thing. And th they had something that passed for soap. Do you remember, I think in the Old Testament, maybe a couple times it talks, about, or at least once, it talks about fuller soap. And the thing about that soap we're told, is that it didn't smell very good. And fullers always used, or generally went outside the city to do their work, so they'd have space to work, and so that it wouldn't um, mess up other people with the bad smell. And then again, the Bible a couple times, I think, talks about the fuller's field outside the city. That's what well, Jesus clothing here, even though it wasn't being laundered at the moment, was whiter than any fuller on earth could ever get clothing. And as I think along those lines, I'm just thinking about a little aside. Are there, I'm wondering if there's any homemakers here after thinking about how they went about doing their laundry, I wonder if there's any homemakers here that are thankful for modern-day automatic washers and dryers. When we go to Matthew, he also gives two descriptions about Jesus' clothing and his countenance, and both of those are similes again. His face did shine as the sun, and the raiment was white as the light. Do you notice those two comparisons, those two similes? Best that he can do to describe what was happening in Jesus' clothing and Jesus' face. And I ask the question, since when is light white? But that's what Matthew says. His raiment was as white as the light. Since when is light white? Um, I wouldn't have put it that way, but then again, I'm not very scientifically 
knowledgeable, but I did kind of remember how that back in school days in science class, maybe it was said that light is white. So I checked on the internet and a couple places. And one, here's a quote from Quora.com. Light is a spectrum combination of seven colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet, which combined makes white light. And somebody else said, the sun emits all colors of the rainbow more or less evenly, and in physics, we call this combination white. I thought that was so interesting that we can trust the Bible, even in issues like this. Matthew said, his face became white as the light. Now when we go to Luke, and notice what he says, he also has two thoughts. Uh, his, it says there that his face was altered, I think, or the, his clo or the clothing were altered. And that takes us back to that idea of changed, transfigured, glorified. And the other word that Luke uses, and maybe you're there, it kind of grabbed my attention. It, it used the word glistering, which is not something, a word that we often use, but we think of, probably you're thinking about, we might use the term glistening, which I think is what it means. Glistering. To, and Mr. Thayer in his lexicon says that glistering means radiant or to flash like lightning. I hadn't ever noticed that before or thought of that, but I think that Jesus' clothing there wasn't only bright and shining and white and changing and beautiful, but it was, um, it was flashing, I kind of think, maybe. I wouldn't have minded being there. Well, so there's the glory in verse 3. His clothing and his countenance. Moving on to verse 4, and there we see a couple of companions appearing and being with Jesus. So the three disciples were there. But now there's a couple of other people appear. And I read from John Phillips. Suddenly two men appeared from the past. The first was Moses up from his unmarked grave, dug for him by the angels of God on Nebo's lonely mountain. By Moses had been kept out of the promised land as punishment for his sin in smiting the rock. Now God repealed the ban and brought Moses to the mountain peak of Hermon. Whereas Moses came up from the grave, Elijah came down from the glory to which he had ascended with an angel escort when his work on earth was done. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Moses represents all of those who have died in Christ and who will be raised at Christ's coming again. Elijah represents all those who are caught away living at the coming again of, the res uh, the coming again of Christ. On the holy mount... Moses and Elijah spake with the resplendent Christ of his decease, which he must accomplish at Jerusalem. What a conversation it must have been. Moses and Elijah. One of them symbolizes the law, the other the prophets. One of them symbolizes those that are dead in Christ and have gone on. The other one describes what might be uh, the, those who are still alive and remain at the rapture of the church. 
And what an encouragement that must have been. The disciples, don't you think they were invited to come along, those three, uh, to be a help to Jesus? But they were sleeping, Luke tells us. Not the only time that they had problems with that. I don't see anybody with that problem at all here this morning. Good. He, Jesus needed, I don't know if that's correct to say that he needed comfort and strength, but I think that he derived help and courage from Moses and Elijah. Certainly, it must have been a, some kind of reason like that, that God sent those two to Jesus at this point in his life. And notice that he didn't need to tell Moses, get thee behind me, Satan. And Jesus didn't need to reprove Elijah by saying, thou savorest not the things that be of God, as he had said to one of the disciples just six days, I think, before this. And there was a decease that he should accomplish in Jerusalem is the way that Luke terms it. The decease that he should, they were talking about the decease which he should accomplish in Jerusalem. What does decease mean? Well, we think it means death. That's not quite what the word means. Um, decease, people tell us, scholars tell us, means the word that is rendered deceased here in the King James actually means exodus. And if that takes you back, that thought takes you back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, yeah, I think that we'll be on to something there. The Exodus was that of the children of Israel leaving the land of bondage and going out into freedom. I think we could say that Exodus equals freedom. Exodus equals freedom. Um, that's, that was the case with that Exodus back in the Old Testament. Moses, the leader there, he's in the conversation here on the Mount of Transfiguration, which we think was Mount Hermon. But it also, as we think of that word, decease, and how that it means exodus, which means freedom, don't we think of ourselves and how that Jesus decease, Jesus' exodus, and resurrection brought, brings exodus to us, brings freedom to God's people today. Thank God for freedom from sin. God's people have exited that and have moved on to freedom, and that freedom is only, will yet be really realized one of these days when Jesus comes back, or when we are called to be with him through death. Freedom, exodus, decease, and did you notice that word accomplished in Luke? And again, I quote from John Phillips, who I think says it very well. His death was no accident. It was an accomplishment. He was in charge throughout the whole affair. The Romans were not in charge. The rabbis were not in charge. The rabble was not in charge. Jesus was in charge. 
The sun was plunged in darkness. The veil of the temple was torn in two. The earth shook. Graves burst open everywhere. He sovereignly dismissed his spirit and died of his own volition before the executioners could finish him off. His death was indeed an accomplishment and made possible salvation for one and all. Thank you. Thank God for Jesus and for his decease that he accomplished in Jerusalem way back then. So we've looked at verse 3, we've looked at verse 4, and noticed that the clothing and the countenance were in view in verse 3, and how that verse 4 especially highlights the companions. Now let's look at verse 5 and 6, and you will notice quite a come down from the glory of the clothing and the countenance and the wonder of having Moses and Elijah there. Uh, we could entitle that, those verses, I just chose the word chatter. You know that chatter means to talk rapidly in a foolish or purposeless way. It means to jabber. And isn't that what Peter was doing there? The text says that he didn't know what to say. And Luke says that he didn't know what he was saying. But that had never kept Peter from talking before, from chattering before. And the fact that he didn't know what to say and that he didn't know what he was saying didn't keep him from chattering here on the Mount of Transfiguration either. The worst thing I think that he chattered was that he was insinuating that this transfigured Jesus was on the same level as Moses and Elijah, on the same level as humans, that Jesus was on the same level as even very great humans, some of the greatest humans. He said, oh, let's make three tabernacles, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for you, Lord. The same level. That was, a mis that was the second worst thing that he chattered, I'm suggesting, is that he was advising Jesus that now you're on the right track. This sounds so much better than what you told us six days ago about dying and suffering and that kind of thing. So, yeah, finally, Jesus, you're on the right track, so let's just stay here and make these tabernacles and let's turn this place into... Um, a Penn Valley, a retreat center, you know, where people can come and enjoy. If, if that encourages me to think about that I'm not the only person that some too often talks when I don't know what I'm saying and too often talks when I don't know what to say, if that's an encouragement for me, and it is, but I need to also tell myself, I need to also remember and maybe you do too, that there was a time in life as Peter progressed in the Christian life after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit came, of which Holy Spirit ministers to us, where he didn't chatter, but he became much more wise in his use of words and knowing when to be quiet and when to talk and how to say it and in what manner. So I'm encouraged by all that. Remember Peter? 
There was a time when he was in prison and an angel came to rescue him and, and the text there shows that Peter didn't say a word. Good for Peter. All he did was just do what the angel said. He wasn't meaning to uh, correct the angel, help the angel. He just obeyed what the angel said. Other times, uh, at, like at the, in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem conference, Peter said some really weighty things there. Peter, in his books that he wrote, which we have preserved and which we have today, First and Second Peter, a lot of wonderful things that Peter brings out by use of words. You know, there's three, there's nine fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, and the very last one is that of temperance, which is self-control or self-restraint. And Dave, in the devotional this morning, talked about how bear means to, to hold up. Well, there's another similar word used in the New Testament that's forbear, and that means to hold back. And we, as God's people, with the Holy Spirit living within us, um, God would want us to, us to learn when to talk and when to hold back, when to talk and when to forbear, as Peter learned. So we also can, under by the Holy Spirit living within. There's that old poem, you know, a little rhyme. There was an old owl who lived in an oak. The more he heard, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Oh, if men were all like that wise old bird. And then I think of a verse in Proverbs 25, 11. Um, I can't get it right now. Um, Proverbs, maybe I need to turn to it if I can find it real fast. Proverbs 25, 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. And I think pictures has to do with a frame. And you would probably agree with me that there's hardly any nicer picture to be had than some nice, a picture of some nice um, crimson crisp apples on a branch with nice green leaves and then a, and then a tasteful um, frame highlighting all of that. Can you imagine a nicer picture? I can't hardly. But that's what a fitting word is, like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Going, moving on to verse 7, a few, number of th few things that we should notice there, and one of them is the cloud. So we've talked about the clothing and the countenance in verse 3, and the companions in verse 4, and the chatter in verses 5 and 6. Now moving to verse 7 and noticing that cloud. Now we're told that clouds often form, or maybe it's fog, that kind of thing, on Mount Hermon often form and then dissipate just about as quickly, maybe just lasting for a couple minutes. Uh, Mount Hermon is 9,400 feet above sea level. And we think and assume that that was the mountain that the transfiguration took place on. Can't prove that, but we think so. This cloud, though, I'm suspicious that this cloud wasn't an ordinary one. Uh, I think it's Luke. No, it's Matthew that calls the cloud a bright cloud. And there are people that think that this really was a New Testament 
appearing of the Shekinah glory from Old Testament days. Remember the cloud that led the nation of Israel through the, through the desert? Can't be sure about that, but it could, could have been something like that. There was that, something extra special about that cloud. You know, there was a lot to see on Mount Carmel, um, I'm sorry, on Mount Hermon that day. There was Jesus' glory of his clothes and his countenance, the, the glory, the splendor, the grandeur of it. There was evidences galore there of Jesus' um, divinity, deity, his glory shown through at various places on this day, on this mountain. Not only that, the glory, but then there was the mega privilege that the three disciples had of seeing two of the greatest people that had ever lived, and they had died hundreds of years before this, and they were privileged, just those three, to see Moses and Elijah. It doesn't say there that they talked with them, um, they were probably too awestruck and sore afraid, verse 6, to do that, but they could see that. They could see Jesus' glory. They could see Moses and Elijah. Clothing, countenance, companions. They were being treated to sights that human eyes had never viewed, or certainly not since the, since the Israelites had seen Moses' face shining um, on that day long ago, back in Old Testament history. They saw a lot. Now a cloud comes along and obscure, obscures all that. And a couple things that this cloud does. Number one, it shuts up Peter, finally, from his chatter. But number two, it obscures the glory that they were so that their eyes had been being treated to and that their eyes had eagerly been feasting on, although they were very scared, like the text says. Uh, later, much later, Peter called it the excellent glory there in Second Peter 1. The excellent glory. But the cloud came along and obscured all that, and by the time that the cloud disappeared, Moses and Elijah had disappeared, and... The transfiguration of Jesus had disappeared. So, what they were seeing all of a sudden was hidden from them because of the cloud and because of the disappearance. Which brings us to, I think, the crux of this sermon. Point number five, we've talked about the clothing and the countenance and the companions and the chatter and the cloud, but now we get to the, to the important stuff. Still in verse seven, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. We get finally to the, the commandment. The commandment. This is my beloved son. Hear him. There weren't six personages up there that day. It wasn't just Jesus and Elijah and Moses and 
John and Peter and James. But there was a seventh being there. Now, was God the Father actually there, or was he up in heaven and talking down from there? You know, at the baptism, when Jesus had said, this is my beloved son, hear him, the Bible says in two different gospels that the voice came from heaven. But where did the voice come from here? All three gospels say that a voice came out of the cloud. God was actually there in in, presence, in, in his presence, in the cloud. And the last one to make known his presence, God the Father, almighty, sovereign, Lord of heaven and earth, he does so very unmistakably as he talks out of the cloud. And I think it's so significant of what he says, especially the verb that he says, when he says, this is my beloved son, hear him. There's one action verb there, and you know what it is, right? It's the word hear. They had seen a lot, but God says, and I'm putting this in my own words, of course, he said, don't worry about what you saw. The important thing isn't what you saw, here, the important thing is that you hear him. Not see, but hear. Were the disciples in the wrong to have seen all this? Certainly not. Certainly not. But the proper response now to what they had seen, God says, is that you hear. First you see, you saw all that, but now I'm commanding you to hear. What does that mean? To hear something. What does that mean? Well, you hear what I'm saying, right? Sure, you can, because of technology and th things like a speaker system, you can hear that. But that's not what God meant as much as biblically to hear um, I think Mr. Strong, his concordance of Bible words, and Mr. Thayer and lexicon, he, they would say, people like that would say that to hear, as it's used in the Bible, biblically, is to attend to, to consider, to, I think this is interesting, to understand, to perceive, to comprehend. So when God says, told those three disciples to hear Jesus, he was saying, Consider it, understand it, perceive it, get it, can you get it, comprehend. And certainly by extension, then, to follow through on that which you hear. To see Jesus for us today, to see Jesus in his glory is needful and wonderful. Jesus is the glorious Savior and Lord. And we need to see him. But after that worship experience, God's children yet today need to hear him, to understand, to perceive, and then to follow through in service after or along with the worship. God desires and God is worthy of our worship. And we as God's people 
need to worship him and see him in his glory, but beyond that, we need to also serve him, to hear him. After a Mount Hermon-type experience, maybe some morning in your devotions, um, you just get a better glimpse of Jesus. Uh, there's something that you read that inspires you, and the Holy Spirit helps you through with that, and you see something that you, you see something that you hadn't ever seen in the Bible before. At that point, I think God would maybe say the same thing to you as He did to the three disciples on Mount Hermon that day. Hear him. Not only see beauty and truth in Scripture, but then to follow up and to in service to hear him. Can you, at this point, hear God the Father saying to you as you sit here and as I stand here, this is my beloved son, hear him. So, at the end of this sermon, um, can you answer the question of the title for yourself? What's to be heard on Mount Hermon? What's to be heard on Mount Hermon, I would say, is to hear God saying, hear him. And will you kneel with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, I pray that we could indeed hear you as you speak through your word, which you've so graciously given, and which we have here in this world, in this part of the world, so freely and openly. And I pray that we could, in, could see you as you are in your glory and follow up on that by hearing you and serving you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind, and that we could be completely sold out to you and hear you in everything that you say to us. It could be words of encouragement, could be words of warning, could be words of, um, of showing us where we have failed and where we need to do better. In all of that, Lord, might we be faithful as a church and as individuals here today in hearing you, hearing the Lord Jesus, who is our creator and Lord and Savior and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.